But let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the time that we have here to, to gather, to worship you, uh, to seek you um, in prayer, in, in worship of music, through music, and uh, worshiping you um, through the studying of your word. And so as we look at this next little snippet that Mark gives us, Lord, we ask that you would help us um, uh, to learn about you and what you desire from us. Lord, we pray that you would expose um, areas in our life that need uh, work, that need surrendering to you, need um, us to really step back and to humble ourselves and to allow you to work through us. Father, we do pray as we sang in that first song um, that you would give us your eyes that as we go about our day, as we uh, visit, stop in at grocery stores, go about our day-to-day life, Lord, that you would help us uh, to see others through your eyes. And and that really requires us to to know you through your word, to uh, have your spirit within us. And and so, Lord, we, we just desire to... Uh, to grow to be more like you in our day-to-day lives. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us and transform us from the inside out. Uh, And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to heal? But they remained silent He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And Father, we do thank you for this unfolding story of your life, uh, the incarnate life of Christ. We ask that you would, Lord, help us to know more about you and and more about us, Lord, and our depraved nature. And uh, we ask that you would help us, Lord, in this. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Right, so the the corresponding stories uh, of this story are found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, and in Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. The... the real only difference that stood out to me is that Luke, uh, the physician, gave some detailed information in that he says that it was his right hand that was shriveled, where Mark and Matthew don't indicate which hand, just that he had a shriveled hand. Um, as we come to this story, um, th- th- there's, there's this building tension between Jesus and the establishment uh, and it's easy to miss as we sort of take one little story at a time each week, but to, to remind ourselves, if we were to go back to chapter 1, um, at the very end of chapter 1, we had the story where Jesus had planned to go to the various cities, and as he was going out, he came across a leper, and he, he healed this, this leper, and he asked the guy, hey, don't say anything to anybody, just keep it to yourself, go to the priest, um, have him examine you, make whatever offering you need to make, um, and go about your life. And so that leper then was restored back into his community, but he didn't keep his mouth shut. And so everybody found out about Jesus. They found out what he was doing. And we're told at the very end of chapter 1 that as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And so at the beginning of the story, the, the guy with the leprosy, he was on the outside, Jesus on the inside. By the end of the story, it's totally flipped. Jesus is now on the outside. Uh, word is spreading about him. He's, uh, he's growing in popularity. And as Jesus' reputation grows in popularity, uh, 
the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious establishment, they're growing more and more concerned about who this guy is and what is he doing and the things that he's doing or the things that he, yeah, the things that he is doing. Um, uh, it's, it's threatening their power and their authority. And so uh, some of the building things in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, we read, when Jesus saw their faith, now this, this is a story of the four guys that lowered their paralyzed friend through the, the, the roof of the house. Uh, we're told that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there and he saw into their hearts and he saw that they were upset and he says, why are you guys so upset? <laughs> What's it easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say... Get up, you're healed. Obviously, they can't answer that question. And so Jesus says, okay, to demonstrate that I can forgive sin, he looked at the paralytic and he says, get up, your sins are forgiven. Um, strike one against Jesus. He's, he's, he's really upsetting them because he said that he could forgive sins. Only God can do that. Then he tells this paralyzed guy to stand up and walk, and the guy does it. Then in verse 16, after the calling of Levi, Jesus is then sitting with some tax collectors. And it says sinners, but the reality is, is sinners equates to non-religious Jewish people. <clears throat> they were people that didn't observe all of the, the Pharisaic teaching. And so there we see when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors... He's there getting upset because now this up-and-coming rabbi is hanging out with the outsiders and not um, living his life according to the insider's way of doing business. And he's challenging everything that they do and everything that they, they think. In verse 18, it moves from that story, possibly the same context. Then Jesus is asked, uh, hey, why, why do your disciples not fast? John the Baptist's disciples fast. The Pharisees and their disciples, they fast, but yours don't. So Jesus basically responded back to them and said, listen, guys, the Messiah is here. Even in your tradition of how you do weddings, the rabbis say you're not obligated to live under Mosaic law or under our rules, anything that might make you um, unhappy or bring less joy to you during this week. And so therefore, my disciples don't fast because they're in the Messiah's presence. And then he goes on to say, you can't take an old piece of cloth to a new cloth or, or a new cloth to an old piece of cloth and, and patch it together. You can't put new wine in old wine skins. And he essentially looks at them and he says, what you all are doing is incompatible with what God is doing. And we need to start with the foundation of the actual scripture and start from there. Um, then we move on to chapter 2, verse 24. And we see the first Sabbath story. It's a beautiful Saturday. They're, they're walking through the grain fields. They're hungry, so they grab a couple heads of wheat, rub it in their hands, blow off the excess, pop the grain into their mouth, and the Pharisees jump out of the bushes. What are you guys doing? They're breaking the Sabbath laws. And so Jesus, again, challenges them and says, you know what? The Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was given to be a blessing to man, not man to be a slave to the Sabbath. And you guys are messing it all up. And so they're furious. And, and today... As we head into chapter 3, this is sort of the, the, the culmination of, of the tension between them because at the end of the story, the Pharisees are going to partner with the Herodians and, and they're going to seek to have Jesus killed. Um, one commentary says this on this section. It says, in chapters 2 through chapter 3, verse 6, we have seen the buildup of what seems like an inevitable confrontation. The religious leaders of Israel are certainly tiring of Jesus humiliating them and asserting his own authority. The worst part is he, cont he continually backs up his claims with acts 
of undeniable power and teach with inherent authority. So it's like, and the guy keeps backing everything up, which is way worse. How, how are we going to shut this guy up when he has authority, he has power, he teaches like nobody teaches, and then he backs all of his teaching up with evidence? The logical thing would be you think that they would submit themselves to his teaching and then to follow him because of all of this authentication, but they've dug in their heels and they continue to press back against him. And it's easy to judge them, but I think we do the same things so often in our life, but it's harder to see in our own life. And so here we come to verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand, the right one according to Luke 6, 6, was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And so... Uh, to remember this story, there's the three S's. We, we see there's the Sabbath. That's an issue. We are in the synagogue is the setting. And then we have the man with the shriveled hand. And so here it is, the Sabbath. They find themselves in the house of worship. I, I, to help us with the story, this is a picture of a replicated synagogue. This is from uh, Nazareth Village in, in uh, Nazareth. And so the YMCA has like recreated a little village to take you back to Jesus' time. But, but this kind of shows um, h- how a synagogue would look during Jesus' time. So um, you can't really see the seats behind where the picture is taken from, but it's essentially like a, a circle setting and with uh, seats up there. And the individual would be in the center of this and would, would begin their teaching. And so they're all set in the synagogue. Uh, in this scene, there's a man with a, a shriveled, hand, uh, meaning that it was almost like just deteriorated. Like, uh, you know, I think of like an arthritic hand that is so shriveled up that you can't open up your hand anymore. Um, So the hand was there, but it was rendered completely useless. Um, Mark points out that it's on the Sabbath. The Sabbath seems to be the the critical piece of, 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 of the pie Um, for the setting because the Sabbath was the pet peeve of of the Pharisees. This day which which God had sort of set into the order of creation that God created for six days and on the seventh day uh, he rested, it, it, it essentially set up the cycle of life for man, that man was to work for six days and to, to have a day of rest on the seventh. It was intended to be a benefit to man. It was intended to be a blessing to man. And they had distorted it to where this day had been a great burden. It was, it was a terrible day for them because all of the rules and regulations and what they could and couldn't do, it was just overwhelming on them. And so Jesus is challenging these rules that they had made. And here they are. They're in the synagogue. There's this guy with a shriveled hand the great question is, what is this guy doing here? Did he just happen to be there? We don't know the answer. Did he just happen to be there? There's a, a number of people who think that the Pharisees drug this guy in there as sort of a, you know, we went at the lake yesterday up at Doan Pond, or a pond, I guess it is, and, you know, there's people fishing. It's almost like their bait, like, oh, is he going to bite on this? Certainly Jesus isn't going to ignore this guy with the shriveled hand. And so the the, the, stage, the stage is, is, is sort of set. And we, we see twice within this passage that they, and if you read through these six verses and you see the them and the they, the Pharisees are there just waiting to, to pounce on Jesus. This word, the, the looking and the watching clearly, it sort of conveys the idea of, of, a, of a small business owner that has stuff that they're selling. And then a group of teenage kids that look like they're up to no good walk in, right? And how does that shop owner watch those kids? What do you, uh-oh, he went around the thing. I got to go check out to see you. And as they go out, hey, can we pat you guys down real quick? No, no offense. We just, you know, just in case any of our stuff jumped into your pockets. And uh, so th- that's what's going on here. Th- these guys are not in the synagogue uh, for worship. They're, they're not there to learn. They're not there to study. They're not, they're n- not there to to learn from this 
fantastic rabbi that, that we've seen teaches in a way that no other rabbi has taught. They're there simply to look for an accusation, to look for a way that they can condemn him. Um, I think that there's a, a huge warning in this for us. It's so easy to go about life just looking um, for things that we can criticize in others, uh, the way that we can judge others, while failing to, to look at our own life, uh, failing to, to go to just about life, asking God, Lord, show me areas that I need to improve in my life. And we're so uh, focused on others that we lose sight of growing personally. And so then there's the man with the shriveled hand. Just can't, like, I'm trying to imagine. We know it's his right hand. I, uh, whether he was staged or he's just there on his own, it's kind of a, I don't know, I just, I, I feel bad for this guy. He, he becomes this sort of this, this object. Um, I don't know. I mean, he literally is going to end up in the mush pot where everybody's staring at him. You know, Jesus is going to call him forward. It doesn't say why he's calling him forward. He's just going to be up in the center and kind of like, what's going on here? Like, what's going to happen? Why are you doing this to me? The, the, the irony of this whole setting, the hypocrisy of this whole scene is, is overwhelming. Jesus desires to do good. He has this record of doing good and helping people. And then you have the Pharisees conspiring to do evil, but they are so blinded by what they're doing that they fail to see that like they're doing the very thing that they think they're keeping Jesus in check for. Um, and so Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, and I'm trying to imagine like a synagogue, like I have no idea where this guy was sitting. And in the English translations, it says, you know, come, come forward, because that's generally how our church life is set up. But, but it's, li- it's literally come to the center. And so the picture is like Jesus is in the center, surrounded by all of these people, and it's like, hey, you with the shriveled hand, come down here. It's like, what do I have to do with this? Like, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I hate going to like any sort of place or where they suddenly turn on you, where they're interactive, you know? Like, like I'm here to, I've paid to watch you entertain me, not to be a part in your skit, you know? Like, and here this guy now is, is front and center. At this point, we don't know where Jesus is going with this. Uh, Mark's given us sort of the, the context. So Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Come on down here. Um, and then he's going to ask the Pharisees a question. <clears throat> I, so back in verse 3, what they're looking for, they want to see if he's going to heal him. I, so we're all really quick to, and where the story goes, like a miracle's going to happen. Um, the, the guy's going to be miraculously healed from his hand. But back to the accusation or, or the plot and this idea of them uh, waiting to see if the, he would heal him on the Sabbath. And then the, the, the question that Jesus asked, is it, is it uh, um, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, to save life? Uh, Jesus is talking in medical terms, not in miracle terms, just f- for the context. This is the Sabbath. And so if you're a doctor doing medical stuff, on a Saturday, that's work. And would you believe it that the Pharisees had a whole bunch of rules concerning medical things of what you were allowed to do or not do on a given Sabbath? And so, so just so our minds are sort of in the context of what they're thinking, they're not asking about a miracle or not a miracle. They're thinking medical terms. 
Um, uh, uh, For example, one of them that I read, which is like horrifying to me, a dislocated shoulder. I've never had a dislocated shoulder, but I've seen people who have, and it doesn't look... Is there anybody that's had a dislocated shoulder? Was it fun, Larry? (laughs) But was it fun? No. (laughs) It looked horrifying. So the Pharisees, in their Sabbath rules, they had deemed a dislocated shoulder was not a medical emergency, and so therefore could not be treated on a Saturday. And there was a whole list of things. Like you literally, if there was not medical intervention and you would die within that 24-hour period, that's that's the only way that a doctor could then intervene or the medical treatment could be sort of happen. Dislocated shoulder. Sorry, bub. Tomorrow morning at sunrise, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll be willing to pull it out of your arm. You know, like, it seems crazy to me. But a, but a like religious practice that I was just stunned to hear. The, so the first time I was in the Middle East, now my disclaimer is, I haven't been to like the real Middle East in a long time. Like Israel's more like Europe than the Middle East. Um, it's, it's definitely not Muslim uh, law in, in Israel. And as a young guy going to um, the Middle East, I forget the details. I don't know if it was a sect. So I'm giving all my disclaimers. So I'm not saying all of Islam. I don't, I don't know if it's all of Islam. I don't know if I was in this particular case where there was a subsect of Islam but I was in a place where there was like a bad, like there was a bad car accident, and there was a lady in particular that was injured. There, um, there was a first responder and then a medical doctor, kind of situation. And those men were not allowed to touch the wo- the woman because of religious convictions. For, it's because it's inappropriate for another, a guy to, to talk, touch a woman, even in a life-saving situation. And so only the husband could touch her. And so um, like they could give instruction to the husband to do stuff. But, you know, I'm just like, you know, Lord help Anna if I'm ever in that situation <laughs> because I don't think I'm going to be able to be a doctor. And, and, uh, and so this is kind of like, that somehow in the midst of all of this, they're so focused on their rules and regulations that they had so departed from like the heart of God and how, like what God designed this, the Sabbath for. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was super simple. It was to give humanity a break. It was to provide rest simply because God is good and he cares for us. And they had so changed it to all of these rules and Jesus goes there to worship on a Saturday and because he's a rabbi, he would have been invited, especially Jesus, to to speak and to share And he looks out at the crowd and he sees these Pharisees and he's like, the only reason they're here is to try to trap me, is to try to accuse me, is to try to manipulate the word of God into something that it doesn't say. And so instead of saying, you know what, I'm done, I'm just leaving, What he does is he sees this man with a shriveled hand and he brings him front and center. So Jesus is setting up a confrontation. He's like, let's go for it. You guys want to play? I can play. And so he brings this guy forward. And I do want to point out that that Jesus' point of conflict with the Pharisees uh, is, is not dealing in principle. So in principle, they're on the same sheet of music. 
And I do think that there's a lot of times within Christianity um, where various groups will agree in principle, but where they disagree is in practice. Does that make sense? So, so and I think practice is where like convictions are. And I, and I could see that an individual like having convictions that necessarily don't align with the scripture, but that's what their convictions are for whatever reason, that that's a, how they were brought up, how they were raised, and they, they can't broach that, whatever, whatever it is. And so they're all in agreement on Saturday. The Saturday is a special day. It's a consecrated day. It's to be set, it's to be set apart. Um, the practice of what does that mean? Well, clearly we've already seen that they, they think that means that you can't walk through the fields and take a head of grain off of the, the, the stock and, and then rub it in your hands because you're breaking. Uh, you're harvesting, you're threshing, you're, I, I never, I don't know what the professional vernacular is not written down, but there's four different aspects. So they're, they're preparing food, they're harvesting it, they're threshing it, I think is where you, or is that winnowing? Winnowing and threshing, I think, are two different things. But so they said, you're doing work on this day. And she's like, you're crazy. They took lawfully a, a, a piece of grain off of the side of the road, which is biblical. They simply broke it up and they ate it because they were hungry. And so now they're here and Jesus knows when he pulls the guy down is a shriveled hand that the guy has had for like who knows what happens. Like maybe the guy was in the rodeo last year and he got his hand twisted up and, and something. Is this a life-threatening injury? It's not. And so Jesus knows that they say that if you're going to do any sort of medical treatment on this guy, even if it was a miracle, it should not be done on the Sabbath, which is a day that's consecrated for God. And so he brings the guy and he asks him this question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Does this seem like a hard question to any one of us? This is an absolute easy question. The religious leaders should have no problem answering this question. On the Sabbath, is it okay to do good or evil? Okay, evil is bad. Good, that's a, that's a broad, you know. To kill or to save a life. Now, he uses to save a life because that even is within the pharisaical system. You were allowed to save a life. If it was life-threatening, you could save a life. And there's silence. I mean, I think there's like silence that is so thick you could cut it. That they, they know they can't answer this simple question. Because if they say, yeah, it's lawful, then they've kind of submitted to where Jesus is leading them. If they say, no, it's not, they look like the cold-hearted jerks that they really are. If we back it up even more, Jesus is trying to bring life to them, and they're only there to plot his death. And so they're so enslaved to religion, and the way they do things, that they, they simply... They can't, they don't respond. They're so stubborn. They so desire to be right, not correct, that they just are in silence. That not one of them has courage to say, no, you're absolutely right, Jesus. You got us. These are the religious leaders. These are the people that are supposed to be leading the nation of Israel in the ways of God. And, and in this question, they're so exposed for, for the evil in their own heart that they had lost t- total connection with what God desired of, of people and how God thinks about stuff. Uh, one of the things in my trip to Mongolia, it's been like 10 years now at this point, um, Josh had invited us out to, the, out to 
Well, it's all pretty countryside. But he wanted to take me out to this army general's house, this retired guy. And so we went out there, and the, the setting was really relaxed and casual, and we were kind of laughing, and he was, he was a first-generation believer in Mongolia. And he was kind of sharing with us about Mongolian culture. And they, they do a lot of religious things in Mongolia, the Mongolian people. And I remember asking him, I'm like, well, why is it that you do this? I don't remember what the specific thing is, but there were a couple of things that I was really curious that I had observed about the Mongolian people. And I said, well, why do they do this? And he started to talk in Mongolian, so I'm not really understanding him. And Josh is trying to translate. He got, he's kind of talking, and he basically smiled and started shaking his head. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And Josh is like, he looks at me, he's like, man, you're really stretching my Mongolian vocabulary here. He's like, but if I understand correctly, what he's saying is, he first was trying to explain why they did it, but then he just stopped and is like, we have no idea why we do what we do. The reality is when the Russians came and, and took us into captivity, they executed all of our religious leaders. And so maybe one, maybe 100 years ago we knew why we did what we did, but as far as I know, we just do it because that's what you're supposed to do. And we don't understand the why. And so I don't, like, I want to give the Pharisees a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that maybe when these rules started, maybe the very first person that, that initiated this matter of conscience on themselves, there was good spiritual-minded reasoning before it. But now, so many years after these rules had been sort of solidified and their tradition had been raised to the same level as Scripture, they have no clue why they're doing what they're doing. And certainly what they're doing was so far from the heart of God. Um, and, and, and here is in their silence, Jesus begins looking around at them. And as he looked around at them, we see two responses of Jesus. We see that he looked around them in anger. And then we see deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And so, uh, one is an external response. So, so this anger... I think it's the picture that as they looked at Jesus, it's like, oh man, we really got it. Like they can see this. I see him looking at them in their eye, just, you know, veins in his neck and the one that shows up in the forehead when you get really mad. And just like looking at them, like, are you kidding me? You can't answer this question. This is like righteous anger. But then within him, there's this internal sadness that he's deeply distressed at the state of Israel, the state of these religious leaders, that their hearts had become so hardened that they couldn't answer this like softball question. This isn't a trick question. This is a, maybe this was a leading question to get the conversation going to get to the debate, but they're so stubborn in their hearts that they couldn't answer Jesus. Something that, was, that should have been sort of common ground between the two of them in principle. And this whole scene between their trapping Jesus, Jesus' response, um, Dealing with the external, they're there. They only care about Jesus' external actions. They only care what he's doing that is in violation with their man-made rules that are couched in uh, Judaism. Not, not the Bible, but their, their added practices. They don't look inward at Jesus' heart and go, who is this man? What is he saying? Why is he saying this? They only care about the external. 
Jesus is, is disappointed at their hearts. From the outside, these guys look like good religious, you know, good Jewish boys. These are the leaders. These are the ones that were most respected amongst the community. They, the, the Pharisees were the blue-collar leaders. And Jesus is looking beyond their external, uh, skin-deep image that they've created. And he's looking into their hearts. And he sees this hardness of heart. And, and it's the inside that is infuriating him. And even in, in my, like I, I was thinking about this, and I'm like, well, what, like, what, what, how does this apply to my life? And it's like, well, the first thing I said is, have I really considered how my life affects God's emotions? And then the more I started thinking about that, I'm even asking the question from an external like, perspective. Like, is my, is my life how I'm living it making God happy or sad? When I should be asking, what I should be asking is, have I considered my heart? Like the things that are within me? Are the things that I'm doing on the outside, is it flowing from a heart that's, that's sensitive to God's voice, yielding to God's spirit, listening to him, allowing him to lead me? Or is my heart hard? And I might be doing all of the religious things on the outside, but my heart is hard. God's getting at the, the heart of the issue here. And so then he has the guy up in front, and so he tells the man, or says to the man, stretch out your hand. <laughs> so here's this poor guy in front of everybody. He's kind of, in, he's kind of the, the center of this fight that's happening that he really is not involved in. He's like, this is really uncomfortable. Like, what's he doing this whole time? And then Jesus asks him to do the thing that he can't do. A guy with a shriveled, deformed hand can't like, stretch out his hand. And this is so much of our problem. God says, come to me. And yeah, the Bible says we're totally depraved and we can't come. And yet, by his spirit, we come and he regenerates us. And this leads to all sorts of theological arguments or because we're man and we can't quite understand sort of the line between our our what appear like appears from our perspective is free will and God's sovereignty and his action like we can't so then we end up kind of picking a team because that's what humans do you pick a team even though there's like truth in both sides and just because you don't understand and I'm saying you by me and so here this poor guy is stretch out your hand has he ever stretched out his hand or when was the last time he stretched out his hand like I, I don't know then all of a sudden he stretches out and does what he can't do based on Jesus' instruction to him. We know nothing about this guy. We don't see his reaction. We don't see, oh, he went leaping and jumping and you know, praising God and, or you know, going around high-fiving everybody in there, something he's never been able to do. There's just nothing. There's... There's no, the Pharisees saw this and they're blown away. That their hearts suddenly responded and they began weeping and mourning for the hardness. We don't see any of that. What we see from this teaching and following miracle, I do believe that there was, like, Jesus probably healed him spiritually, also physically, because we see through the Gospels that the miracles physically are, the, the, the greater issue is, is what's going on underneath the surface and, and where they are spiritually. And so what happened was this transformed life. Then all we read is, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That seems like an awfully weird way to respond after like miracle after miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching over these, the course of the last chapter basically. That all of these wonderful things that Jesus has done resulted in, they've now partnered with the Herodians who these guys wouldn't be bedfellows. This is, 
the Herodians weren't really even a religious group. The, the Herodians were a political group who believed in uh, upholding, sustaining, promoting the Herod dynasty, Herod the Great dynasty, that he, that he would continue to reign and to rule in their region. They both hated each other, but they had a common hatred towards Jesus so they could link together in order to, um, to bring about his destruction, which I think highlights the, the visceral hatred that the Pharisees had for Jesus. And so here they are on a Sabbath, plotting to kill Jesus, the very, the very thing that is not biblical, I mean, that's not biblical, and just in case there's any question about that. Like the, 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 the irony, the hypocrisy, it's thick. These guys think that they're honoring God, maybe, and yet they're doing the thing that is clearly in violation against God's desire. Um, Charles Swindoll, dealing with legalism, says this, the legalist reduces his or her relationship with God to keeping rules, obeying regulations, and following rituals. The motivation isn't love or devotion, but self-reliance. It is the opposite of the dependent relationship God desires people to have with him. For Jesus, the keeping of the rules and rituals takes second place to a spontaneous response to God's unmerited favor towards us. When we live in trusting dependence upon the grace of God, we obey him as a natural expression of our own love for him. And so I think that within this story, the the essence of the gospel is kind of like bubbling through. Um, just the hardness of the pharisaical system that had been so crystallized over the years that, that it, it was like it, just beyond repair. I, all week, I've, as I've been going through this, so reminded of you know, Martin Luther and his battle with the Catholic Church that here was this, this brilliant man teaching in the, the universities and he became just more and more at odds with the teaching of the church. You know, we, we know the Great Re- uh, Reformation, although Martin Luther, I don't think, was trying to, to have it resulting in where it went. Um, he really, truly wanted to reform the Catholic Church. But the thing that, like, tipped him over the edge was the selling of indulgences. And he's like, this, this, uh, this, this is insane, and finally, the Pope sends this, 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 what was called a bull, like, hey, you need to recant. He said, I can't recant from this. It's not biblical. And I think the front page of today's Union Tribune paper is, it's still like ongoing. The, the, the Catholic Church, they're still trying to figure out a way to restore and to reform the church, and they're hoping that the new crop of priests will, will bring cleansing. Um, I bring up the Catholic Church because I was, I was raised in the Catholic Church and so there's a lot of when I see stuff like this I, I see a lot of what I experienced and, and it would be very easy to, for us to, to write off you know, Catholics but I've seen many Catholics come to faith even though the system may or may not be repairable. And in the scriptures, there's also many Pharisees who come to faith, even though their system was not repairable. But Jesus never gives up on them. It's really easy for us to condemn the Pharisees, but that's, that's, that's not historically accurate. Paul the Apostle, the guy who, that we have, that God used to give us the teaching for everything that we know about church came from a Pharisee. It was him that God used. In Acts 6-7, we see, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests 
became obedient to the faith. And so this isn't like Jesus, while they've given up on Jesus and they want to kill Jesus, Jesus is still trying to reach the Pharisees and the individuals within the movement. And we would see these guys repent and give their lives to Christ, many, many of them. Um, it's just that the compassion of Jesus is not skin deep. He is going deeper than we as humans really have the capacity to do. That he was able to look deep within a person and see their heart. Um, we see this poor handicapped man that's just like, he seems to be nothing more than an object lesson in this story. But I can't imagine, like I just can't imagine what this guy experienced that day. And to see how Jesus looked at this guy who would have been on the fringe of society, and yet he brings him up front and center and says, guys, listen, I'm going to teach you something wonderful about the Father through this man, in this man. And I think that the heart of the gospel is that people are more valuable than ceremony, are more important than religious Practices, ceremonial law. Um, here we see yet again where Jesus presents a situation with an individual. And he says, This person's soul is more valuable than these traditions that you've created. The legalist or religion, it says, I obey. Therefore, I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted. Therefore, I obey. From the outside, they look exactly the same. Like it's so hard. And I think that this is like, when I look at my Catholic family members and we're kind of going back and forth, it's like we just have a wall here because we're, they're, they're like, you're saying the same thing I'm saying. It's like, no, I'm not. Like, and it's like, it's semantics. I'm like, no, no, it's not semantics. It's understanding that God has accepted you and you're living your life in obedience out of response to what he did is radically different than keeping the sacraments and all of the rules and all of this stuff so that God gives you favor. It's, it's, it's everything. And so God's desire is, is for us to know that he loves us, that he provided a way that we could find restoration in him for our sin, and that he wants us to experience him in relationship. The, I'm going to close with the, the one line of the hymn that Billy Graham made you know, famous, just as I am, or maybe it wasn't Billy Graham, it was a George Beverly Shea, the one who sang the song over and over again. <clears throat> but the line in there is, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. Like the thing that we can't do in our sinful nature. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. And Father, we do thank you for the wonderful, marvelous grace of the gospel that doesn't say you have to do this or do that in order to find God's favor. The gospel tells us It is done. That it was finished on the cross. There is nothing for us to do other than to respond. Father, grace is so simple and yet so profound. It's almost more than I can possibly take in. And so, Lord, I confess and we confess that it's so easy for us to think of you as a rule giver and that we're supposed to do our checklist or we get in trouble with you. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your love in a, in a, in a meaningful way, that we would understand what grace is in a meaningful way. Father, I pray that we would learn first that we are accepted by you, that Jesus truly paid it all for us, and that as we come to him in faith, that we're transformed from the inside out, that we are made new, that by his blood we've been cleansed down to our innermost being, our consciences, something that the law could not do, as Hebrew tells us. And Father, from this place of forgiveness, from this place of acceptance before you, not by anything that we have done, we ask that you would then from there lead us, Lord, to respond to you in obedience, not to earn your favor, but because we have your favor in Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves and uh, to check ourselves of rules that we've put in place that are not from you and how we examine each other and outsiders. And God, we ask that truly, as we sang in that first song today, that you would give us your eyes. Lord, help us to see others as people for whom Christ died that we would view ourselves as saved sinners. We brought nothing to you deserving of forgiveness. You provided everything for us. Father, I pray that you would keep us humble before you and with each other and with the world around us. We are grateful, Lord, that we loved you or love you because you first loved us. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.